we are starting a new series today on Lent. Um, I was sharing with Steve this morning that I actually jotted down most of the notes that developed in the sermons for this back uh, when we were doing our Advent series, thinking about the build-up to Christmas and how Christmas has become uh, a bigger deal in our world than Easter is. Um, it's a more marketable holiday. Um, but the early church fathers in our church history would tell us that Advent and Lent were intentionally uh, set aside for us to get our minds focused on the build-up to Christmas. Advent tends to be more commonly celebrated across the board than Lent. But Lent is this time set aside, this 40 days, uh, 46 if you count all the Sundays, build up that we can just prep our hearts for the beautiful story of Easter. So Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. That's the official start of the Lenten season. And, uh, and so that, uh, this is the first Sunday in Lent. If you want to turn with me, we're going to look at the book of Genesis this morning. I didn't write down a page number if you're using the Bible in front of you, but I think it's close to page one. If it's not page one, it's close. Um, so today, I, I want to give you sort of the main idea of what we're driving at today, and then we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit. But before I do that, I want to give you another update from the body that uh, I had written down, but got wrapped up in all the other stuff that we wanted to celebrate and pray for. And I want to, I, I want to make you aware of something else we can just definitely pray for, and that's uh, Jess and Steve Youngblood. Uh, so Steve Youngblood is married to Jess Baker, uh, if you, you might know her more by her maiden name, uh, but uh, Steve's brother Tom, who would have been 41 on Tuesday, uh, had been dealing with some sickness and they weren't really sure what it was and just unexpectedly passed away the other night. And, uh, and so Steve's, they hoped to be here this morning. Steve woke up with a wave of grief that he didn't expect and, uh, and they ended up not being able to come today. They really wanted to be with the body, and I just want to encourage you to pray for them. Uh, his brother Tom had, uh, and he and his wife had triplets that are six, and, uh, and so they, they are in the process of figuring that out. Now, it's not, it's not completely unexpected, I guess I should say. He was, he was sick on and off since last April, and they couldn't get a handle on what it was. They seemed to never be able to get ahead of it, and ended up developing the sepsis the other night at Penn. And uh, was in one of the greatest hospitals in the United States, and they couldn't figure it out. And, uh, and uh, the Lord figured that was his time to go home. So just be with them as they, as they figure out what life's going to look like without Tom. Uh, and uh, just wanted to let you know if you could reach out to Jess and Steve, if you have their numbers or address, send a card or send a text message or call just to let them know you're, you're praying alongside them. That would be very helpful. I wanted to let you know that. Um, it's appropriate that we that we understand brokenness at the beginning of Lent. It's appropriate that we understand the broken aspect of this world. Because Lent has to start with some bad news before we can let ourselves travel through the next 40-some days to get to the really, really good news. So here's the big idea we want to look at today, and it's that every day, in some way, we fail to keep God's law. And it isn't because God didn't do a good job of making us. It's because we're living under this curse of God for the sin that happened that we're going to look at in Genesis. 
Now, Jesus came to break the curse and give us hope, but he said that you're still here, and while you're here, you should go and make disciples and, and preach the name of Jesus and baptize people in my name and, 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 and invest in people, not just where you live, but outside of that and into areas you're not comfortable with, with people groups that maybe you don't understand and to parts of the world you might not have even expected yourself to go to. That's essentially what Jesus says with the Great Commission. But until he comes back to completely redeem and restore the brokenness of this world, we're still here. We have to live under the effects of sin. We don't have to live under the destiny of them. So Lent reminds us of that. So in the very beginning of time, we get a good glimpse of God's intention for humanity. If you want to look with me, it's in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look uh, later on in it. Uh, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence. Um, But in the book of Genesis is where everything gets started. The word Genesis literally means start or beginning. And so this is the beginning of the story. And in the beginning, there was God. That's at the beginning. Do you remember that? At the beginning, there was God. So God existed before the beginning. (laughs) He's going to exist after the end. There's no timeline that God fits into to describe him. When there was absolutely nothing in existence, there was God. That's hard for a human brain to wrap our minds around. But after God creates, he speaks and the world comes into existence. After God does that, he creates everything we know to exist. And when I was a kid, I used to simplify that. And I think because when you're a kid, you, when, you're, when you're teaching a kid, you want to try to simplify a complexity to a level they can understand it. That's appropriate. But I used to not think about the grander things of creation. Uh, I remember I was, I was hiking with a friend out in Colorado, and we went to the, uh, went to the Continental Divide. So we're standing at like 12,000 feet, and, uh, and the wind is blowing so hard that I'm not kidding, I could lean into it like I was a downhill skier, and it wouldn't let me fall. I mean, it was just, just barreling wind, like hard to walk in. And it was impressive to me, and it, I was short of breath, and uh, because of the altitude, not because I'm out of shape. Uh, and uh, just, just to clarify. Uh, and I remember thinking, not just the mountain. I used, to, I used to think about that. Like God created a mountain and boom, it came into existence. A 14,000 foot peak. So you can stand at the top of Pikes Peak, 14,118 feet. And you can look out at, at the grandeur of creation. And you're only about halfway up Mount Everest but you're still pretty darn high. And I remember thinking, like, God created that in an instant, but in that moment, with shortness of breath and a, a wind just rustling in so heavy and so hard that I, couldn't, I could barely stand against it, that in an instant, God created that too. God created the systems in me that breathe in oxygen filter out what I need, and then collect all the carbon dioxide and all the things I don't need. And when I exhale, that stuff comes out. God created all of those systems with a word. And I tend to not let my mind focus in on the complexity of creation. I tend to think like, okay, God created, uh, he created light and he created darkness. Simple enough, right? 
God created land and he created sea. God created every flying animal and fish in the water. All the diversity of creation God created with a word. Not only that, but he created the systems that sustained them. He created the, the, the animals that live in the sea, he created them to either have to breathe air, which means they'd have to surface every once in a while, or to be able to filter the oxygen out of the water, which means the water had to have a chemical makeup that made oxygen exist in that environment. And they were able to filter out the oxygen that existed in it and get rid of the, the impurities in their system the same exhale way. As they moved through the water, they would be able to breathe. God created that when he created them in an instant if you let your mind go down that rabbit trail, it'll, it, I don't know about you, but it blows my mind. It blows my mind, the complexity of God. And he creates all these animals, and then he creates a dude, and he, he tells him, listen, the first thing you're going to need to do, and this is important for us guys to realize, the first thing that God gave Adam to do was a job. I think because he knew, like, you're going to sit and binge watch Netflix if I don't give you something to do. And so Adam's first job is to name all the animals. So if you ever wonder where, why we call something what we call it, we can blame Adam for that too. We have a lot of things we want to pin on that guy. So Adam names all the animals, and as God watches him relate to creation, he recognizes that it's not complete. This man was not made to relate to what has been created thus far. And so he makes him go into a deep sleep. He pulls a a rib out of him. He uses that, and he forms a woman. And when Adam wakes up, after scanning for I don't know how long, all of creation, everything living and breathing on the earth, he says, now this, this is good, God. What you just made for me here is good. It says bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, but... Listen, guys, if you ever say that to your wife, it's not really going really to work out for you all that well. Like if you say, oh, now this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You don't have to say it like Keanu Reeves, but I digress. So God creates all this. He gives Adam the blessing of, of in, the, in, the, in Hebrew, it literally gets translated over to indispensable partner. He says, I'm going to make him a helper suitable is what we have, but it's a poor translation. The Hebrew actually says indispensable partner. If you've ever attended a wedding I've officiated, sorry, you've heard this dozens of times. So it, it, the, the translations we have kind of make it sound like, yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you something, and yeah, she'll do a helper suitable for you. Another one, guys, don't use that language. Oh, yes, you're suitable for me. No, God, God makes an a indispensable partner for Adam in this world. And then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion, rule over creation. That's what he says in Genesis 1.28. Pick up there with me. Uh, I'll start at 27. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was God's plan. God's plan was to have people populate a perfect existence. To have dominion over it. That he wouldn't be the overlord. He would just be God. A good and gracious God that would come in the cool of the evening and walk with his creation and enjoy the creation alongside his creation. His plan was for them to fill and populate this world. And then subdue it, which means that, that out of all of creation, I have made you unique and set apart. No other part of creation can do what I'm asking you to do. And there was an, there was an opportunity for all of mankind to subdue the earth, to rule over the earth, which meant there was no fear of an animal attack in their sleep. There was no uh, venomous snake that could kill them without them recognizing it was going to happen. There was no termites that would eat up their house. There was none of that existed. It was complete harmony and complete unity with God walking alongside. That was God's vision. There had to be some kind of parameters, though. There had to be some kind of way to communicate back to God. If not, they would just be drones walking around doing whatever their creator had beckoned them to do. And God did not create robots. He created people. And so verse 29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for you. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The seventh day, it talks about God resting. Later on, just for sake of time, I'm not going to read every word of it, but later on, God creates this tree of the knowledge of the fruit of good and evil. Now, let me just pause for a second and remind us that whenever sin enters into our story, it happens in Genesis 3. We see that there's a temptation that happens and we get banished from the garden because this is where God wanted sinlessness to exist and we ruined that by choosing sin. But I want to remind us of a couple things that I tend to forget. In that moment when God banishes from the garden, what did we still have? We still had plants that gave seed. We still had fruit that gave seed. We still had sustenance. We still had food. We still had things to care for us. We still had the gift of marriage. It's in there and we got to keep it. God still wanted this world filled with people. That didn't change. But what changed was that sin and a holy God can't commune in the same place. When you fast forward to, in chapter 2 of Genesis, it gives us a, a closer view of the, of the creation of man and woman. 
That's where we get the full story. It's not that it's not in chronological order. It's sort of a zoom in on a previous spot so that we get more detail. That's essentially what chapter 2 of Genesis is. Chapter 3 tells us uh, that, that there was a serpent in verse 1. He was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let me just stop there and say that Satan started off as an angel and he wanted to be God. He wasn't able to, sub, to, to submit to the lordship of God. And because of that, he got cast out of the garden. He took cast out of the heavens and he took a third of the angels with him. And ever since then, he's been trying to gain a spot he knows he will never get. So he's going to hit God where it hurts most and he's going to try to continually take God's creation away from him best he can. So in Genesis 3, we see that the serpent comes up and the woman said to the serpent, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? Did God say that you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. There's a, there's a realization in this moment that we hopefully... Lent can do this for us this year. If you haven't been to this point yet, I'm sure if you've been breathing air in this world cognitively for more than three minutes, you can probably put this together. And it's that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. You can diagnose brokenness pretty quickly in our culture. In 1991, there was a movie came out called Grand Canyon. It had uh, Kevin Klein, had Danny Glover in it. I think Steve Martin was in it. Uh, it, it, was a, it wasn't a comedy. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a, a glimpse of culture, if you remember seeing it. It didn't really, uh, it wasn't a, a, an, an amazing movie, but there's a scene in it where this lawyer makes a wrong turn. He's trying to zip around traffic because he doesn't want to wait, and so he gets off an exit, but then he quickly doesn't understand where he's at, and he ends up in a very unsafe and unsavory part of the neighborhood, and he's got this very expensive car, and wouldn't you know it, his car breaks down. He calls a tow truck driver, and while he's waiting for the tow truck driver to arrive, uh, there's a, a gang of about five guys that come up and just start harassing him, and, and, uh, and they're, they're starting to threaten him. They want to get money from him, and the tow truck driver gets there, and he confronts the gang, and he says this. To the gang. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what we see right here. And it's this social commentary of the recognition that, that he just drove, he's just trying to do his job. He's just trying to do his job. 
and nothing in that moment's the way it's supposed to be. This guy's supposed to be able to get home on his way home from work. You're supposed to be able to do what you want to do and what you need to do, and I'm supposed to be able to get here and, and tow this guy's car. None of this is the way it's supposed to be. That should be our recognition at the beginning of Lent. And Adam and Eve are about to step into that in the story. But I want you to catch how this happens because it's subtle, but yet it's loud. If you look at those seven verses in Genesis 3 again, we didn't read verse 7 yet because the seven is what the consequences are. Seven says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There's, there's three things that I want to pull out right in this moment. It, it's, it, Genesis 3, 1 through 7 gives us a really clear image of how one can fail to obey God's commands. The first thing that Satan wants to do is he wants to cast in doubt. He wants to make you doubt. He wants, you to, make, he wants to make you doubt that what God said isn't really what he meant or what he said. That's where he starts. Did God actually say? That's where he starts. Did God actually say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? That's how he formulates the question. Basically, Satan's saying, did you look for the loophole yet? Is it a rule or is it a guideline? Is this one of those better to ask for forgiveness and permission kind of moments? He's getting doubt in the mind. Did God mean what he said? Her answer is a good one. She informs him of what she knows. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden or the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That was her interpretation of what God said, by the way. The next thing Satan does is he ushers in confusion. So first, if he can get you to doubt, but not act, he'll bring in confusion. So the next thing he does is he says, you will not die. God just is threatened by you having the same knowledge he has. Listen, do you think that God would spend all the time he has made, all of this, only to throw it all away because you took a bite out of a piece of fruit? Come on. That's Satan's tone. First doubt. Did God actually say that? Then confusion. Then it leads to the third thing, action. That's where Satan steps back and marvels in his work. The action part is where Satan just steps back and witnesses his, his grandeur, his work. He wants to be the marionette and he wants us to be the puppets. But it's not that simple for him, so he has to be more cunning than that. He brings in doubt. Then he brings in confusion. 
Listen, church, our world is chock full of this today. Doctrine means nothing to people in our culture today. Because we want to be able to make one another happy before we want to honor God with truth. So we're afraid of saying what we really believe. We're afraid of living out of what we really believe. And those of us that that in our culture today tend to wear that proudly, do it in an unloving way. So we've got to figure out what we believe. We've got to understand who God is, and that's found in His Word. If we are the church and we're not people of His Word, you don't know the voice of God. You don't know what God says. You just know what other people tell you God says. And that's not good enough. Now Eve heard directly from the mouth of God, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. And she still was taken captive by Satan's lies. So how much easier is it for us if we're not people who try to understand and read and study and apply God's word? We live in a culture where it's super easy to get other people to tell us what God's word says. It's way easier to do that. We pay thousands of dollars. I paid thousands of dollars to go to school to have other people tell me what God's Word says. I think the four years I was in Bible college are the years I read least amount of the Bible unless I had to do it for a class. Please don't take that as me saying I'm anti-Christian college. That's not at all what I'm saying. That was my choice to not do that. But podcasts and Bible study books and... Books that tell us what the Bible says without reading the Bible. And we don't know the heart of God because we don't listen to His Word. All those things are given to us as tools, ancillary tools, to help us understand this better. But we need to know what God says before we know what other people tell us God says. If I'm the only person that's speaking what God says to you on a weekly basis, you're the one missing out because I'm not that good. So here we have this moment in history where God says, by the way, the tree exists not for your punishment. The tree exists for your benefit. You can make a decision to actively stay away from the one tree in the garden. You cannot touch it. You cannot eat from it. And in that, you will be able to communicate back to the giver of life that you love him enough to hear him and to obey him and to do his will. That's going to be your way of saying, I love you, back to me, is what God says. This tree is here for that purpose. It's not here because I'm vengeful. It's not here because I'm waiting in the bushes to jump out and say, ha, I knew you'd fail. That's tend to be how we kind of view God in our culture. But that's not why this tree was put there. But what happens next, in the instant that sin comes into these people's lives, in the instant that it happens, they feel shame. They recognize their nakedness. It took half a millisecond for sin to start dictating their behavior. Did you ever catch that? It was so quick. Sin, they took a bite, they realized they were naked, they made clothes, they hid from God. 
That was their behavior pattern. And God comes into the garden, starting in verse 8, and he tells them, where, where are you? And they told him, we're, we're hiding from you. We're ashamed. God asks them an interesting question after they tell him, we heard you walking in the garden and we hid because we were naked. And God asks them in 11, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? I never even taught you that word. So who told you that? I tend to go back to this verse as often as I can with my own kids, just to when, that, when I hear lies creep in, and even in my life when I hear lies creep in, wanting to find my identity in things that aren't God and aren't dictated to me by God, I tend to want to go back to this verse and remember what, G, what God himself said. Who told you you were naked? Who said that about you? Who said that you look fat? Who said that you're not enough? Who said that you're ugly? Who said that? Who told you that? And in that moment, God is sad. He's heartbroken. This did not catch God by surprise. Nothing catches God by surprise. He always knew the plan was to send Jesus. Lent is the time of year where we get to build ourselves up in the reminder of sin cost God his son. Sin didn't, it cost us a relationship with God before Jesus It's this season of preparation for the cross. It's a season of preparation for the resurrection. And the best way to prepare is when we come with, to full grips with the understanding that we are in desperate need of the cross and the resurrection. Adam and Eve lived their whole lives, and Adam was in the 600 years old range when he died. They lived their whole lives with the promise that one day they would be restored back to what the garden was supposed to be like, and they never saw it. Moses lived his whole life with a promise, never saw it. Noah lived his whole life with a, with a promise, never saw it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, name the church fathers, David, Daniel, Joseph, Jacob. Go through the whole list. Esther, Ruth. Rebecca, all of them. They lived with the promise that the world would go back to the way the garden was. And they didn't live long enough to see the Messiah actually do the hard work. They just lived under the promise. I want you to hear what Paul says to his letter to the church in Rome. I'm going to read it to you from Eugene Peterson did a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. And if you want to turn there, it's in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 is what I'm going to read. Uh, actually, if you would, go ahead and turn there. We'll take two extra minutes and do this. 
I'm sorry, I did not write down that page number. If you get there in the Bible that's in front of you, you can yell out the page number if you would like. Paul's talking to the church in Rome here, and he's telling them that, that they've been released from the power of the law. They've been released from living under the law. He's giving them instruction on that, and seven can be kind of a confusing passage if we don't take the time to study it. I'm not going to break it down for you. I think Eugene Peterson does an amazing job with it, so I'm going to read it. But before we do that, I want you to hear what ESV says. Start at verse 7 and just hear the first 12, 7 through 12 Uh, in Romans chapter 7. This is ESV. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive, apart from the law. When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Listen to how Eugene Peterson describes this. This is how Eugene Peterson would, would, would say what Paul said. Essentially is what the message paraphrase is. But I can hear you say, if the law code was as bad as all that, it's no better than sin itself. And that certainly is not true. The law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the succinct, surgical command, you shall not covet. I could have dressed covetous up, covetousness up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. Don't you remember how it was? I do perfectly well. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened though was a sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. Without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless. And I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, I was fooled and fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong. So sin was plenty alive, and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good and common sense, each command sane and holy counsel. We tend to separate the command of God in the garden to stay away from the tree from the law that was given to Moses. And they shouldn't be separated because they were given for the same purpose. But with the law of Moses what the Ten Commandments gave and what the law throughout the whole New Testament came to give us was not just that way of communicating love back to a father, but a way for us to understand and comprehend and realize our own brokenness. The law was there to point us to something broken in us so that we would be looking for something to fix us on an eternal scale and in steps God. If the author of the law says, I'm giving this to you and you can't keep it, you should look back to the author for the questions that you ask. 
And what Paul's saying here is the same thing that Satan did to seduce Eve in the garden is the same thing, Adam and Eve, by the way. We tend to give her a bad rap, but that verse is very clear. He handed the fruit to Eve, who handed it to her husband, who was standing there right beside her. And every time the Satan tried to give doubt to this relationship, Adam stayed silent and let his wife do all the talking. He let the evil one corrupt the marriage. He let it happen. He stood by and let it happen. And then he partook. They both were asked the doubtful questions, and they both gave over to it. See, what Satan did to Adam and Eve in the garden is the same thing Paul's saying in Romans 7 happened to him, except for it was the law that was used. I didn't even really, I was blissfully unaware that covetousness was a thing until the law told me what covetousness was. And I I don't want to live in covetousness, but now that I know what it is, Satan tells me, see, that's not covetous, that's fine. And I'm deceived by it. And the law was used to entice me. So what Paul does, if you know the whole story of Paul, is that he hangs his hat on his ability to obey the law before he knows Jesus. Not all of it. Just the ones that he knew he could obey. He wasn't Jesus, so therefore he broke the law. He just didn't break it as much as the guy next to him, so that made him better. You see, Lent is this time of year where we get to set aside this time, understanding that we live in a a season of brokenness with the promise of hope, with the gift of faith, that Satan is going to cast doubt. He's going to usher in confusion. He's going to step back and be in delight when we make sinful decisions. He lays subtle groundwork with his doubt. He brings in another layer of confusion. And then he steps out of the story and just says, watch this. Watch, watch this. Right on time. Right on cue. They ate it up again. You see, Lent doesn't start with the best part of the good news. It starts with the necessary part of the good news, and it's that sin separates us from a holy and loving God. And we lap up sin like a dog does water. We just don't like to admit it. Bob and Sandra said that they wanted the church to pray for them. It made my heart rejoice. Because they were okay with knowing your, they were okay with you knowing their brokenness. Uncomfortable for them, but they're not trying to hide anything from you. So we're not celebrating them. We're celebrating God. We're celebrating what God can and will do. We're celebrating that living a life for Him is better because He told us it was. We're looking forward to the full redemption of the cross. We're looking at at a God who came and died in our place to pay the penalty we deserve to give us hope, to bring us into His family and adopt us as sons, rightful heirs to the full kingdom of God. And then filled with His Spirit, 
clothed in his righteousness, sent out as his ambassadors as though God were making his appeal to humanity through us. That's all really good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news. That is all really good news. But if we don't wrestle with the bad news first, the good news won't be as good as it needs to be for us to really understand it. Sin is ugly. Sin was heavy, and sin put Jesus on the cross. Sin made God turn his face away from his son for the one and only time they were separated. The Trinity was splintered for those moments. And we did that. We're responsible for that. The pain and agony of the cross, that's our fault. We did that. And it should have been us. Do you know whose salvation you would have bought with your death on the cross? Not even yours. You would have just been a guy dying on a cross or a woman dying on a cross. That would have been the end of it. You would have gotten what you deserved, and then that would have been it. You would have been earthly separated from God and eternally separated from God. And God, in his love and grace, said that's not how it's going to go. So Jesus comes, lives a spotless life, and that's the end of the story for Easter. That's where Lent builds up to. But we have to look at the bad news first. It's that Satan lies, Satan brings doubt, Satan brings confusion, and sin leads us to do things. What's the, what's the quote? Sin will lead you further than you want to go and cost you more than you can pay. Jesus did the work on the cross, but he did it because sin broke humanity's relationship with him. And he stepped in and did all the reconciliation work. He did all the hardest work. For us, it's a realization of our brokenness. For us, it's a realization that we have a Messiah. His name is Jesus. He came to be the rescuer, the redeemer. He came to be that. Our faith is in him. Our hope is in him. We don't have to live in sin. We don't have to believe the lies. We don't have to believe the doubts. And when we do, we can hear the voice of a loving God saying, who told you that? Was it me? Did I tell you that? Did you hear that from my mouth? My beloved child, did I say that? Did that come from me? Who are you believing in this moment? Because that doesn't sound like me. That's what God's saying when we have doubt and when we have sin and we have unbelief. He doubles down and he sends his son. So Lent has a solemn start and a celebratory ending. And the process in between is us building ourselves up from understanding our brokenness and understanding that the end of Lent is this beautiful, happy ending where God redeems us of the mess of sin. But we have to start with understanding sin and what it cost and how we got there. We don't have to live in sin. We serve a gracious God who conquered it. God, thank you for being our Messiah. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for being our redemption, our hope. 
Jesus, our Messiah, the name above all names. We are not deserving of this gift. So I pray that we, uh, where, where it feels like sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that when we start to hear those voices creep in of doubt and confusion, it leads us to the action of trusting you more than the action of trusting that voice. May we honestly and truly sing and believe that you are our Messiah.